Welcome to the Marketing Stir podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, associate producer and Starista's creative copy manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges of the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, VP of B2B Products, Vincent Petrofessa and CEO AJ Gupta talk with Brian Hessian, VP of Data Quality and Innovation at TechTarget. Brian recalls the lean years of starting his first company, Oceanos, in a basement, and how it evolved into a family-oriented endeavor, and how it's framed his view of the B2B space today. We also find out that Vincent loves watching the Netflix series, Working Moms. Give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time once again. Vincent Petrofessa here. And you know what that means? The marketing stir is coming at you. Ladies and gentlemen, another episode we are excited about. I, again, Vincent, I am the vice president of B2B products here at Starista. With me, as always, my CEO, Mr. AJ Gupta. What's going on, AJ? It is a beautiful day here in San Antonio. Started the day off, uh, as, uh, as you may recall, with the Bloody Mary. So I'm in, I'm in pretty good spirits right now. <laughs> yep, uh, we had an all all hands meeting celebration uh, as a company hitting some great milestones, doing some great things, and you know you capped it off. Some people capped it off with a nice bloody mary. If I were to do that with a three year old and a one month old, I would have been passed out already. But you did it. I love it. I love it. Luckily, our daycares are more or less open here, although I have one of my kids here today, so you might hear a few screams during the podcast. That's okay. That's what makes it real. Right now, people are not in cozy offices, and they're not in soundproof booths, uh, booths. so that's what makes it uh, all the better. Well, AJ, I've got a great one today. I've known this next guy for about 15 years, even longer than you. I've known him, uh, a great guy. What I love about this next guy is, as as you, my friend AJ, are receiving all of these forty under forty awards, entrepreneurship disruptor awards. This guy has been receiving those long before we have, um, because he had started an awesome company, and we'll talk all about that. But let's give a warm marketing stir welcome to the Vice President of Data Quality and Innovation at Tech Target, my friend, Mr. Brian Hessian. What's going on, Brian? <laughs> All is good here. Thanks for inviting me, Vincent. I'm looking forward to our marketing chat today. And as you said, we've known each other for about a decade and a half. Yeah. You know, best guys in the industry. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, I think it's one of those relationships. I think we got along right away. And I think we met when I was at Walter Carl. Mm -hmm. which was one of the first companies under the Info Group, Info USA umbrella at the time. And I think you have always been involved with uh, heavily in the technology space, technology clients that you always helped over the years, which is true to this day, uh, I would imagine. And I was working on the Ziff Davis account. And I think we used to do some, uh, you know, list rental programs together. No, that's right. Wow. I remember those days. You know. The uh, Ruben response, Walter Carl, ePost. 
Yeah. Like a lifetime ago. It, it does. I know that was about wow, 15 years ago. I was a single man. Oh, it was a great time. I mean, I'm happy now. Yeah. Two, two beautiful kids and a great wife, but oh, the single days. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast, AJ. That's a whole other podcast, but uh, it's great. Great to be here, Brian. You know, talk to me about, I, I, there's a lot of things I want to know, but first of all, it, you have one of the most unique titles I've ever heard of in this industry, the data quality and innovation. Is it just like you just love data that much? T- talk to me about that title. <laughs> Yeah, so when I uh, joined Tech Target, we kind of worked on it together, but it really reflects the role and contribution that I'm bringing to the table. And as you know, it's it's all about data quality. Uh, it's increasingly more important, uh, both account and contact data, and trying to improve the accuracy and completeness of data is a constant challenge, as we all know. And the companies think that can get it right or get closer to where they need to be are the ones that are successful in this industry now. No, no, I agree. I just did a panel on data quality at the B2B Marketing Ignite conference. It was virtual, but the importance of real high quality data, especially on the B2B side where you should be refreshing that data. I was talking on that panel there, Brian, where gone are the days where someone's at a company for 35 years and they get the gold watch. Thank you, Jeff, for your service at, you know, XYZ company. B2B data is ever-changing. People are switching jobs more than they used to. They are losing jobs, unfortunately. So it's really important to, you know, keep data fresh. Talk to me about Tech Target. What does Tech Target do? So uh, we provide data-driven marketing services to B2B technology companies. So what we do is we use purchase intent data that is gleaned from the readership from across uh, about 140 technology-focused websites to help our clients reach buyers who are actively researching relevant IT products and services. So our major differentiator is our ability to drill intent to the person level. Uh, In addition, the tech target members have proactively opted in, which is unheard of in the industry, industry, and I think a real testament to the value exchange. So my responsibility at Tech Target is to kind of set that overarching data strategy and then help execute uh, to optimize both the accuracy and the completeness of our member data. Great. So Brian, uh, you tell us a little bit about how you got started. <laughs> Well, uh, post-college, I I started off in the catalog division at Talbots, uh, and that's where I was exposed to to data. And in the mail order industry, you know, data was was king for a catalog company. I went from there to a couple agencies. Uh, I ran a small list brokerage department at a a direct mail house for a few years. And then I uh, went in town to a company called Digitas and uh, worked on the Delta Airlines frequent flyer uh, account and uh, obviously was exposed to quite a bit of data there. Um, then I kind of knew I wanted to go back to school to get an MBA. So I got into uh, Boston University, went abroad to Japan uh, to kick off my MBA for six months. And on my return, that's when I decided to kind of take a chance. I was 28 years old uh, as Vincent had referenced, it was at that time, it was more old school list brokerage. And I felt that I could add 
a little bit more strategic direction to how companies were sourcing data. And uh, then came the idea of giving it a shot and starting my own company back in uh, 2002. Amazing story. And, and did you go to college in Australia? Is that right? Uh, I studied abroad undergrad in Australia. So, I mean, in general, I just felt that the college experience was amplified if you could take advantage of a study abroad. So Australia was the fun trip, you know, during undergrad. Uh, Japan was to put me in more of a uh, awkward situation. I'm a bit of an introvert and uh, I wanted to kind of push myself a bit. So going over to Japan as one of two American students to join a cohort of uh, Asian students was, uh, was a challenge for me, but it was something that I think helped me uh, gain the confidence to actually break out on my own and, and take a chance and start a business. And it was a great learning experience in Japan. Yeah, and so let's let's back up a little bit there, Brian. So you're at the time because Oceanos is you know has always been such a, a pillar uh, in the industry and a pillar to me. Uh, you know, working with you all these years. You know, what made you? So you're 28 years old. Where are you in life at that point? Or are you still a single guy? Are you married? Where were you at 28? I was single, although I had a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was living in her mother's house and I started the basement in the, I mean, started the company in the basement uh, during the first year. It was just myself and, and our dog mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, not having any bills was, you know, obviously a big help so that you can invest all the operating profit right back into the business. And uh, after year one, uh, I moved out and, and got a small little office in an industrial park. And I remember just how exciting that day was as I look back. And then from there, we moved into Hingham and then eventually uh, built off brand new uh, offices down in Marshfield. So that was that was interesting to go through the kind of architectural process and design the space uh, for the growing company. Yeah. And, and at Oceanos, so you, you ran a brokerage division bef before and you were like, you know, look, I, I, I could do this myself. Uh, I, you know, and I think you kind of carved out an area. You didn't just say, although you, you could have, because of your experience with catalog, you, you could have said, I want to be, you know, a broker. Let me try to be a broker for Talbots or other catalogs. But, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. You kind of carved out a technology base. I remember working with you so much on the technology side. But why was that a, a focus? Yeah, during those early days, uh, we built a couple little uh, tools that helped us provide more of a consultative angle to the business. One was uh, basically scoring lists. So we we went through a process of looking at all the different trade publications and how their uh, filtering and segmentation opportunities were presented and basically ranked ordered lists and then layered in the performance of those lists with our clients. So kind of the, the value prop was that we could go to a company and say, you know what, we're completely independent. We work with a number of different list brokerage firms and list managers but I can kind of tell you which lists are performing uh, better than others. And because we, cat we catalog all this and the fact that we are independent, there's no incentive for me to recommend list A over B. I'm just going to come to the table and tell you which ones are performing the best from an email standpoint in the marketplace. 
And that really kind of caught fire and enabled us to kind of move the company forward. And, and, and start really the pursuit of the data quality aspect of what you do now. And, and so that's kind of always been at the core of it for you, it seems. You know, uh, talk to me about the lean. So it must have been the lean years, right? In the beginning, like you said, the, the basement and then. And then talk to me about what were the years where I, re- I remember, you know, seeing all the awards and I know you won't talk about it because I know how humble you are, but seeing all the awards, the entrepreneurship, you know, 40 under 40, what, when did it really talk to me about the lean years and then talk to me, Brian, as, as Oceana started to grow the number of employees, some of the accounts that you worked with, just, just when you felt like, oh, this is clicking, we're, we're on to something here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be awarded the New England Direct Marketing uh, Youngest Marketing Star under 30 when I was 29. And uh, I was able to kind of use that uh, to really push forward. Um, But yeah, during its heyday, we were running on all cylinders offering uh, data cleanse, enrichment, and contact discovery services. And those early years were probably the easiest ones, to be quite frank because it was still a list brokerage model. And I don't think I truly appreciated how easy the business was during those early years. It became increasingly more difficult as we moved forward into say the second and third generation of the company. And what we were doing in that first generation, we weren't doing any of that in the second generation because the whole list rental marketplace basically evaporated. And then you know companies like Jigsaw Net Prospects came into play and we were working and reselling their data and again trying to you know angle that we were independent and we had access to multiple vendors so it was kind of a one-stop shop approach but then it was obvious to me that it was going to be more of a technology play so in a kind of third generation of the company it was more about building apis trying to integrate into marketo and eloqua which we were successful in doing and you know, trying to automate internal processes so that we could basically build an assembly line to not only produce deliverables, but also to start to manufacture some of our own data so that we were less reliant on third parties. Because as you know, the, the economics within the industry were changing too. And it was, there was a lot of players coming in, uh, lowering the cost of data. And then with account-based marketing uh, starting to gain momentum about maybe four or five years ago, you know, clients were becoming much more narrow in their approach in terms of building contact lists. So the days of, you know, maybe building a data set of 100 or 200,000 IT executives was now, you know, 15 or 20,000 IT executives. And the cost for those records was also lowering. So there was a couple of things from an economic standpoint that were working, I think, against a lot of uh, smaller shops. Uh, and a lot of that was being propelled by larger players like Net Prospects and Zoom Info. So it was interesting. I mean, we had to adapt. And uh, I think we successfully did that three times. And uh, I think at that point, we were like, you know what, I think based on what we saw coming down the pike in terms of data compliance and privacy in addition to just how data was going to be ingested within all these platforms, uh, the handwriting was kind of on the wall, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we started to look for an exit. 
Yeah, and then and, and we'll t- we'll talk about that that exit uh, in, in a little bit in the podcast. And I love it's under thirty, AJ. Thirty yeah. under. I love it. You know, not, I, you look at me. I'm over here. Give a forty under forty. Say, ah, oh, by the way, it's it's under thirty. I I love that. I love that. Well, yeah. I mean, you've always. I, I have always felt just by knowing you, you've always changed. You know, the business. But like I said, is the core focus has always been data. You know, talk to me about, you know, it, was it always the focus, you know, what, what made it just become B2B? What what made that mindset? And then, and talk to me about the landscape of B2B as you see it today. Because like you said, ABM, that's a thing. ABM has always been around, but, you know, we, people, we just slap like a little acronym on it now. People, people wanted like, oh, I want to get into these accounts. Like, okay. But talk to me about, uh, you know, you foray into B2B. Why just B2B? Uh, you know, at least the last like 10, 15, 10 years. And, and, and where do you see it going uh, now? Right. Yeah. And in, in the beginning, we did a little bit of consumer or residential lists, but that space is dominated by some big players. And the cost for that data was really low. So it wasn't an attractive business uh, from that standpoint. Uh, so we certainly gravitated towards B2B. And, uh, you know, I think what really got me excited over those 5, 10, 15 years was how do we kind of build portfolios of different data sources to make something custom and have something unique on the shelf? So we always kind of valued uh, or really enjoyed when a client came to us with a unique audience that they couldn't identify based on traditional SIC codes and NIC codes. You know, what other ways could we leverage the landscape of data vendors that I understood at that time to isolate or back into the right set of companies. And that was kind of the special sauce that Oceanos brought to the table where if those clients were to call one of the larger database companies, uh, they would kind of push them towards their industry filters and it was more cookie cutter. Uh, one could look back and say that that was probably a better approach from a scalability standpoint, uh, but we we did have that kind of boutique consultative approach, which I think served us well in the first uh, 10 years. Uh, certainly, I think the effectiveness of that was weakened in the in the final or in that third generation of the company where automation uh, was really rooted into a lot of these competitive products. Uh, but the way I kind of see the landscape now is certainly it's it's changed quite a bit in the last three to four years. Um, I'm very pleased that Oceanos exited when it did because I've seen some other companies that were similar in size. Uh, you know, there were self-funded organizations that didn't go down the VC route. And, uh, you know, they're, they're basically out of business at this point. Uh, the space is dominated now by a few larger players. And I think with the uh, increasing data privacy and compliance, there's a lot more administrative headaches that companies need to deal with in terms of how they're collecting data and certainly how they're communicating their internal uh, protocols and security measures and privacy when uh, engaging you know, mid-size enterprise accounts. Uh, I see just a tech target, you know, the 
the amount of work that goes into bringing on a new vendor. Uh, we have a chief privacy officer, there's legal involved. Uh, sometimes the CTO is involved in addition to the, you know, the business owner. So it, in many cases, it's like a four person team and there's just a lot of, I think, barriers. So the companies that are in the space now, if they can continue to invest and grow, I think they have an opportunity to become pillars basically. And, uh, I think it will be very difficult for smaller companies to, to work into the space as they once did in years past. Certainly looks like B2B is a hot space right now. I'm sure you saw the uh, IPO that Zoom Info did earlier. I did, yep. Quite quite a remar remarkable valuation for where they are at revenue, for sure. Absolutely. Henry's done a good job with that company over the years. I think he's a few years younger than me. And uh, I remember when they first you know, came to market, and it's amazing the journey that he's had over the past, you know, dozen years. So, you know, we, we recently went through a capital raise process that we uh, closed last week, which was you know, quite a quite a process having never done it before. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, what led to uh, you uh, getting acquired by Tech Target. How much work went into it? Was it a planned event or did it come as a surprise to you? We'd love to get some insights on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, during that kind of third generation of the company, I started thinking about going down the path of funding, but I think I kind of went at it too late in the game. I was talking to a, a few VC firms and it just didn't materialize. And I decided that, you know what, I think the best approach here is an exit. And, uh, you know, we didn't go through any real formal process. I actually uh, reached out proactively to a few companies to share with them that I was interested in moving on uh, to a new challenge. And both companies were interested. I mean, I went down the path with one company. They provided an offer. I thought pretty confidently I was going to move forward with it. But then uh, one morning, when I came back from the gym, I was like, you know what? I'm going to send an in-mail to Mike Atoya, the CEO of TechTarget. Uh, and I'm just going to let him know that I'm really close to, to selling and see what happens. There were you know, a company that we had done a lot of business with back in the list brokerage days. Uh, and he had come down to the Hingham office back in uh, the early 2000s, but I hadn't been in touch with him in several years. But there were a company, you know, in Massachusetts. So I was like, give it a shot. And uh, he replied within an hour. And uh, from there, it was a four-month journey. And I'd have to say that it was, it was a challenging four months because you have to do a lot of work uh, in terms of the financials, uh, the, the technology, the, you know, answering, you know, hundreds and hundreds of questions. Um, while at the same time ensuring that the business continues to at least be flat, if not go up in terms of sales, because otherwise you're put at a disadvantage. It gives leverage to the buyer if your sales start to decline during that period where you're going through the uh, kind of the acquisition process. So it was it was interesting. It was obviously the only time, first and only time that I did it, uh, but it was successful in the end. And uh, the process was fair 
and I was more than thrilled with the outcome. Absolutely. I can only imagine how much work is required for the acquisition because we went through this process during uh, Corona mm-hmm. with our uh, chief accountant on maternity leave. So I learned a lot more accounting <laughs> than I was ever hoping to. I'm sure you did. Yeah, it's endless. And obviously, you want to put everything in. You don't want any errors in any of the information that you're sharing. So you're putting in, you know, 110% while trying to still manage the business and generate sales. So it was probably the most challenging four months of my life. Yeah, I I can certainly see that. And, uh, you know, especially uh, if you're like me or involved in the uh, sales side as well and the uh, emails you send to sales guys versus the uh, M&A type teams uh, can't have that kind of flowery language. They're looking for very precise, exact answers. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so Brent, what has it been like? Uh, you know, you ran your own show for a long time and now being at Peck Target, which is a pretty large company. Uh, how do you fit in into the org structure and what's some of the adjustments yeah, certainly there was an adjustment period. I remember my first day at Tech Target, I was put on a call with Forrester right out of the gate for a couple of hours. So that was interesting. Uh, but what made it easier was the fact that they allowed us to remain in our office. And that enabled the team to stay together. So my day to day, you know, didn't change too much. I was coming into the office, sitting at my desk, everything there stayed consistent, which I think was very helpful. Uh, It was actually quite relieving to kind of once the paperwork was signed, you know, there was some, you know, it was a little sad too, uh, but Tech Target was great. They allowed my older son, who was uh, 12, 11 or 12 at the time, to attend the closing. So he went up to Tech Target with me and we signed the documents and he had played a, a role in the company in the last couple of years from a branding standpoint. He came up with the with the kind of Einstein character that we used on our site and uh, did some of the graphics. So it was it was a, a moment that I, I will remember uh, for my life and something that I'm sure he will, too. But after the paperwork was signed and when I went back to my office, there was a lot of relief, you know, I could peel away from all the pressure of, you know, constantly looking at cash flow, you know, what sales were in the pipeline, uh, employee issues, those types of things, making sure that technology was working. Cause once you have these APIs and connectors within Eloqua and Marketo, there's, you, you underestimate the amount of maintenance and troubleshooting and training. Uh, that is necessary to make those successful. Uh, And I was able to just kind of focus on the core expert piece. And uh, that's what Tech Target brought me on to do. And uh, so I kind of fell back to my consultative days uh, and didn't need to worry about all the other issues related to running a business. That's a great story about your son. Uh, Mine is a little bit younger. It's uh, at six years old, but uh, he uh, was mm-hmm. eavesdropped during some of the uh, PE conversations we were having, and he would ask, "Who is this and who is that?" <laughs> so, sure. Yeah, I have three kids, and they all have offices at Oceana. So when I'd have them 
after school, they'd come into the office and they had their own computer. So they felt very connected to the company. It was really one constant thing in their entire life uh, was the business. So I wanted to kind of play that up a bit. And it was just a special moment. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what some of the things that uh, you did there that were uh, that you remember that were really special and that your employees would have uh, fond memories. Sure. Yeah, we got the company up to 26 employees during its high point. And, uh, you know, certainly when you start to build a staff over 10, you start to run into some culture issues uh, that you need to deal with. But uh, what we tried to do, we had cookouts during the summer. It was a core group of people that worked with me for several years. We had certainly some, you know, young kids in their 20s and uh, they bonded and and to even to the day they're attending each other's weddings and whatnot and there was you know others that were were, that were with me from kind of day one Uh, my mom also worked in the office doing some of the accounts receivable and payable activities so she was very well connected and my dad would come in too so it was kind of a family atmosphere here and uh, that was critical for employee retention we did on our anniversaries, uh, on our 10th anniversary, we took everybody to Disney World for, I think it was four or five days, expense paid. So that was a, a big kind of company-wide, you know, kind of appreciation trip. And we, we attended a lot of trade shows. We used to do the Sarah's Decisions one, and uh, we did Eloquor and Marketo and Marketing Prof and in uh, demand gen. So those events gave us an opportunity to, uh, you know, kind of celebrate a little bit uh, and kind of strengthen the relationships amongst employees. Uh, So we tried to keep it fun. My personality was more kind of business and boring. Uh, Vincent can probably. (laughs) (laughs) I never got that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have that personality. I could sit in my office and just plug away for six or seven hours looking at Excel spreadsheets and be in my own world. But uh, everybody else that worked for me were extroverts. We did the Myers-Briggs test. We had an HR consultant. And uh, they were very different than me, and they needed kind of some excitement in the office and, and events and, you know, ice cream parties and things like that that didn't have a huge effect on me. But I realized in retrospect how important it was to have those types of kind of events uh, and fun activities to maintain culture and make sure that everybody, you know, remained on the same page and that was something we struggled with, and I certainly could have done things differently to to uh, to improve the atmosphere here. But in general, I think everybody knew that uh, it was a fair place to work, and uh, you know, I really wasn't that kind of drill sergeant type of boss by any means. So I gave a lot of uh, opportunity to people to kind of you know work at their own pace. And uh, fortunately, I think we did some great hiring over the course of the 15 years. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, surrounding yourself with different personalities and different people who have different strengths, you know, I think, uh, you know, our company here is really great about utilizing people's strengths. You know, AJ allows me to do different things like this or attend trade shows or speak at trade shows or, you know, host events. And, and you know, AJ does that uh, as, as well. Uh, you know, really tapping into the employee strength. So that's, uh, that's why it's been a great environment for me here. Um, talk to me about the trade shows. What, what is tech target active in going to trade shows? Uh, you know, if so, how are they viewing the situation now as far as trade shows and face-to-face meetings? Yeah. Historically tech target hasn't done a lot of trade shows. Uh, they are, a participant now for a few years, at least at Sarah's decisions. So that's kind of like the, the big show that the company does. They've also done Andrew Gaffney's The Demand Gen, which I think they got bought by, was it Topco? Or some, not Topco, some other organization bought uh, Demand Gen Report, that organization. Uh, but typically the folks that attend the events have been the sales uh, audience at Tech Target, so it, I think Oceanos probably did more trade shows annually than Tech Target does currently. Uh, I think they see other ways of engaging their customer base. Uh, we have offices throughout the country, so you know the sales folks are visiting clients on a regular basis. Uh, but yeah, there hasn't been a, a huge emphasis on trade shows. Because, you know, as you know, that the ROI on them is, is difficult. They're very expensive. Uh, I remember, that, you know, it's not the cost of the trade show. It's really the cost of the airfare, the hotels, and the, and the, and the entertainment piece of it uh, that really, you know, contributes to a majority of the spend. And now moving forward, yeah, it's, uh, I'm really curious to see, you know, what 2021 looks like from an event standpoint. Uh, I think probably COVID and what we've experienced in the past few months and for the balance of this year will certainly change behavior and uh, maybe companies that did, you know, multiple trade shows per year uh, that will thin out a bit with more virtual events. Yeah, I attended a virtual event. I was supposed to sp- like speak at one in, in Chicago in person. I was looking forward to it. The Cubs were going to be in town. I've never been to a Cubs game. I was like, you know, it would have been great. You, you know, especially speaking at, at, an, at an event, you get, you know, just more exposure, people to come up to you. But they still handled it really well. It, they had something interesting in the virtual event where there was a networking room. So you literally waited on your computer, video chatted, where a new person, you had three minutes to talk to that person. And like, you're like, boom, you see like their home. You're like, oh, hey, Brian, I'm Vincent. Uh, This is what I do. And it actually gave you more of an opportunity. I must've spoken to about 22 people. Whereas that might've taken three days at a conference. Not so it was you, no, not for me. I know I'm, I'm downplaying it. You know, I don't want to brag too much. I know, uh, yeah. you know for, for the people who are listening, I want to, you know, be, be humble, uh, who really don't know me. I'm kidding. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, but, but serious conversations, like three, you know, three minutes. It was kind of like, this is what you do. This is what I do. Oh, there's not a fit. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks, man. 
yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, during this uh, coronavirus time, I've seen a large influx of uh, emails coming in. So one of the questions we like to ask is, uh, you know, what are some of the outreaches that uh, you, you, you really don't like and what are some of the outreaches that actually get through to your uh, inbox? I presume with your title, you probably get hit by a lot of data vendors and data companies. Yeah, absolutely. I think in general, I receive less emails than I have in the past from vendors, but I seem to be getting an increasingly more with regards to LinkedIn in-mails. And uh, quite frankly, I don't really pay attention to, to any of them. I might, I'll glance at them, but I very rarely ever engage. Uh, with regards to, to email, I did receive an email, I think it was two weeks ago from Heinz Marketing, which really stood out. I felt it had a kind of the right tone and balance, especially, you know, based on what's going on. And it was more of an e-newsletter format that started with a direct note from uh, Matt Heinz that referenced the current uh, COVID situation subtly with more of an emphasis on kind of the upcoming summer months with a transition to positivity, which I kind of liked because I think we have all received the COVID emails where there's kind of a sympathetic intro and it just seems fake. And within the uh, Heinz e-newsletter, you know, the first article was what's keeping CMOs up at night pre-COVID versus now. You know, so I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of teaser title that pulled in my curiosity. And then this, there was a second article on, you know, face-to-face communications with reference to Zoom, uh, you know, how, you know, the virtual meetings are, are changing that more traditional face-to-face meeting that you might have at a trade show, for example. And then I think there was another article about empathy for sales teams during this time, and then some educational links and upcoming events. And really, those are the only kind of emails that I pay attention to. Uh, are ones that kind of have an uh, educational slant to them. Uh, I kind of already know the vendors in the space. So receiving an email or even an email really isn't going to cut through the clutter. I'm going to learn about vendors uh, different ways, whether it's through, you know, the growth community or or just people I know in the industry. So I feel like I've kind of turned off uh, a lot of the incoming communications and that's something I certainly saw with the Oceanos business as, you know, years past, people were buying, you know, tens of thousands of contact records and really relying on email from an ROI standpoint. And then obviously that channel, uh, you know, its return declined over the years. And I think successful companies use that a little bit more strategically now rather than just continually blasting emails to, to build brand awareness. Yeah, exactly. So kind of uh, one last question for me here, looking at uh, kind of the non-business side of things, what have uh, you been doing personally during the uh, COVID situation? Have you picked up any new Netflix shows, any podcasts, et cetera? Yeah, well, what I tried to do was keep to my schedule as best I could. You know, like I said, I work in a remote office and fortunately for me, I was able to go into my office, which got me out of my house. And I found that to be kind of extremely helpful. Uh, But I understand that most people didn't have that opportunity. And Vincent, I found a way to still keep the gym in the morning. 
in the office building nice. here. There was some weights down in the basement that I was able to take advantage of. So I got up at the same time, came down here, <laughs> did my workout. There was a treadmill, then went home, showered. So I tried to keep to that routine because uh, I'm kind of a robot in that way. Uh, but in terms of like Netflix, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I love Shit's Creek. I just finished watching Outer Banks. So a lot of my uh, shows are influenced by my uh, 13-year-old who is, you know, and it's fun because he's watching some of the shows and I'll watch them and then we can, we can talk about them. Uh, I think Tiger King, everybody watched that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm looking for a new, a new show at this point. I rewatched All the Office, which I think you could just loop that basically. I mean, I really appreciate that show so much, uh, The Office. Yeah, I, that's one of my favorite shows, The Office, and I'm glad glad to hear that you're still. It sounds like you're working out. It's like old school style, like like Rocky, because you know you're like in the, one of the best shape uh, of anyone in their 40s I've ever met. You know, so uh, I was worried about that for you, uh, but that's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, Shit's Creek I hear is hilarious. I haven't seen it, but I love Eugene Levy and uh, you know it's Catherine O'Hara, right? It's uh, I got to check that uh, that one out. I've been doing Tiger King. Uh, working moms. Yep, I did that one. Yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah, I you know I try to watch as many as I can there. Uh, Brian, last question from me before we we let you go. You know, what are you excited about at uh, you know Tech Target? What are some of the cool things you're, you're doing that you want the audience to know of right now? Yeah, what's exciting at Tech Target is is just helping working with the with the team and this a group of really smart people at Tech Target, many of which have been with the organization for 10, 15 years, some of them from the founding days 20 years ago. And I think that's what was most inviting when I started to consider uh, Tech Target as my new home was the tenure of employees. And that really kind of spoke to me in a way that emphasized that, you know, there's something right going on at Tech Target for these folks to be in these roles for, you know, 10, 20 years. And, you know, I'm just bringing my expertise to the table and we're trying to build a system that leverages multiple, you know, data solutions, whether it's uh, email verification, social data, uh, vendors that specialize in phone numbers, uh, CASEL, uh, not CASEL, CAS certification, uh, for addresses, you know, just how can I help them plug in multiple, in most cases, APIs that will enable us to maintain the integrity of our uh, tech target member data, uh, in addition to maintaining the legacy Oceanos business, because that's uh, running as its own business unit. I'm not too much involved with it. They kind of pulled that away from me so that I focused more on the internal data, uh, but Oceanos lives on as a brand within Tech Target, and uh, myself and John Lutz and Chris Matney maintain the Oceanos data warehouse, and that is you know dry, a, a driver within the Tech Target internal operations. In addition to offering that data through the uh, the Oceanos business unit. So it's, it's exciting. You have to find ways to, to be challenged. And uh, I think within the current landscape, it's, you know, how do you leverage different APIs 
uh, and really start to think about every single field within a, you know, a contact record as to how you can maintain accuracy and standardization of that information. Uh, because the bar is has been raised in the industry and clients are expecting uh, data that is accurate, formatted correctly, and I think are less forgiving than they might have been in the past. And the fact that there's been a lot of consolidation, the players that are left are ones that understand and have the infrastructure in order to ensure that their data sets are, are kind of best in breed. So... Uh, that's that's my focus. Uh, there's going to be plenty of work in front of me, I think, for at least a couple of years. And uh, and then, as you know, it's all about, you know, maintaining the data. So you might put the pipes all together, but there's always going to be data issues and rule sets that need to be changed based on changing business processes. So it's uh, never ending, but that's a good thing. And uh I think I made a, a great decision personally to join Tech Target, and I'm having a lot of fun uh, working with the team. That's awesome, Brian. That's an that's an amazing final thought, and I'm actually I'm very happy that you you kept Oceanos, uh, you know, as a brand because it is such a powerful brand uh, in the industry. You think Oceanos, you immediately think data quality. So I'm happy you did that. I'm happy that you joined us on this podcast, my friend. This has been awesome. Uh, you know, people, if you want to reach out to Brian, don't do it on LinkedIn. You better bring a really good piece of content, something that's, you know, provocative uh, as far as data goes and really going to you know, m- m- make them think. So don't you dare hit him in a, on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I, I know that for a fact, because sometimes, you know, you, you got to come at him with, with something, got to call him. You know, he doesn't even answer my LinkedIn sometimes. So don't feel bad. It's- <laughs> no. I used to live in LinkedIn. I was so focused at one time about building, you know, the total number of connections. Uh, it was a major focus. And, and LinkedIn was so critical uh, in years past when Oceanos was trying to, you know, build relationships and engage folks. I just think where LinkedIn stands today, that's been watered down a bit. But certainly LinkedIn and to some extent Facebook. Facebook and uh, connecting with clients back, you know, 10, 10 years ago via Facebook and then carrying them as friends uh, was was really key because it enabled you to build a persona in front of your clients through Facebook and understand what's going on in their life. So you became connected. So Facebook and LinkedIn were really critical for Oceanos. I just think based on where social media is today, it's you know a little less effective than it was back then. But Anyone that reaches out on LinkedIn, I'll certainly uh, get back in touch with you. Uh, add you as a connection, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, only if you mention uh, that you heard him on the marketing stir. That might be the only way if you, if you did it, right? Brian, this has been awesome, my friend. Thank you for, for jumping on. Thank you for the, you know, uh, the friendship and the business relationship we've had over the last 15 years. I, I appreciate that as well. Uh, he is Brian Hessian, the Vice President of Data Quality and Innovation at Tech Target. I'm Vincent Petrofessa. That's AJ Gupta. This is another episode of The Marketing Stir. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening and keep stirring it up out there. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. 
If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at info at themarketingstir.com. Thanks for listening.